on today's episode, Tip Post Tendinopathy Rehab and Prevention with Lizzie Marlowe. Welcome to the Run Smarter Podcast, the podcast helping you overcome your current and future running injuries by educating and transforming you into a healthier, stronger, smarter runner. If you're like me, running is life, but more often than not, injuries disrupt this lifestyle. And once you are injured, you're looking for answers and met with bad advice and conflicting messages circulating the running community. The world shouldn't be like this. You deserve to run injury-free and have access to the right information. That's why I've made it my mission to bring clarity and control to every runner. My name is Brody Sharp. I'm a physiotherapist, a former chronic injury sufferer, and your podcast host. I am excited that you have found this podcast and by default, become the Run Smarter Scholar. So let's work together to overcome your injury, restore your confidence, and start spreading the right information back into your running community. So let's begin today's lesson. time coming uh our tip post tendinopathy i think i received a fair bit of feedback from facebook groups saying um when are you going to do a tip post episode i think it's been going on for the last couple of months so um sorry for my delay but i'm so happy that i have lizzie marlowe presenting rather than just me talking about it um she's done an excellent job she'll uh, introduce herself in a second. Um, before we get into today's episode, thanks to everyone who submitted their questions. Um, I'll give you a shout out now. First to Sam Todd. Sorry, during the interview, I had a bit of a blank and um, couldn't remember if it was male or female, but um, sorry, Sam, I did um, answer your question and um, had to look uh, back in the Facebook group and um, apologies for that. But um, we have, Sam had asked, um, she asks, have you, she's been having um, flare-ups and wondering, uh, are flare-ups expected? Catherine, who asks um, uh, her, Lizzie's advice to prescribe orthotics. We have Jill talking about plyometrics during tip post rehab. And uh, Danny, who asks, what are some strengthening exercises to strengthen the tendon? I'll answer all your questions um, within today's episode, but thank you so much for submitting your questions. And yeah, we cover so much today. We cover um, what are some running considerations, what is the the anatomy and function of the tip post or tibialis posterior, what would be the likely cause of this tendinopathy, what we can do in early stage rehab. We talk about orthotics, we talk about pronation, we talk about late stage, we talk about prevention. So much to cover today and Lizzie um, was so generous with her time and loved hearing everything that she had to say. Um, Really sound advice, really evidence-based advice and yeah, just loved talking to her. So I was actually worried about my voice, Uh, not lasting the distance, but um, like I said, last episode, um, I just finished attending a four-day Tony Robbins seminar where uh, me and my brother were just in the living room. Uh, It was a virtual seminar and we were just dancing in the living room, changing our life, yelling at the TV, and it was just a party for four days straight for 13, 14 hours a day. And (laughs) um, yesterday, lost my voice in the morning and luckily it had recovered, but I was wondering how to go throughout the interview. So I held up well, thank God, um, and the result was just an amazing interview. So without further ado, here is Lizzie. Lizzie. 
Lizzie, thanks for coming on to the podcast. This whole topic around tip post tendinopathy uh, is a long time coming because I get a lot of feedback from uh, my Facebook group. And uh, every time I like, I think this is probably the condition where people are like, when are you going to do an episode on tip post tendinopathy? Because I haven't done one yet. And as soon as I saw you on Benoit's uh, course, I'm like, this is the person, this is the time we're going to do this now. And so um, I really appreciate your time and thanks for coming on to the podcast. Hi, Brody. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited about talking about this topic. It's something I'm really interested in. So yeah, it should be a good talk. Absolutely. Me too. Maybe we dive into um, your career at the moment, like who you are, where you're from and why this particular interest. Yeah. So I am a lower limb and running physio based in London. Um, and I also do a little bit of part-time lecturing on various lower limb and running courses as well. So I work in both the public and the private sector. So I guess this has meant I've had exposure to a variety of different patients, including runners, but also patients who are a little bit less active. Um, I've had some amazing opportunities working in various different lower limb, uh, various different central London teaching hospitals. And this has allowed me to work in a few different specialist lower limb and foot and ankle clinics. I guess I've always loved the complexity of the foot and ankle and became particularly interested in TIB post while working in a specialist clinic uh, in London with a specialist physio called Nolene Davey, um, who actually trained in Sydney and is one of the founders of the Association of Foot and Ankle Physios. So through that, I got to assess and treat loads of patients with tib post tendon problems and just found it a really interesting condition to assess and treat. Great. All right. So for those who aren't too familiar, and I know the tip post, I, I guess, anatomy is a little bit hard to visualize. Uh, and that's when like the downfall of a audio uh, podcast, but um, could you maybe like a, as simplistically as you can for like a runner to understand, maybe describe the anatomy and the function of the tip post tendon? Yeah, so I'll, I'll definitely give it a go. As, as you've mentioned, it is quite complex, but the tibialis posterior is a muscle uh, that sits in the lower leg. So it attaches onto the back part of the top of the tibia or the shin bone. Um, so it's essentially behind the back of the underneath of the knee um, and it runs down the lower leg. So it sits underneath the calf. So it's quite deep in the lower leg and it passes behind the inside of the ankle, so on the inside of the foot. Um, and then it attaches onto a number of bones around the medial arch and the underside of the foot. So it has a pretty broad insertion underneath the foot around the medial arch. And one of its main functions is basically to stabilize the medial arch. It also plays a really important role in running uh, and, and walking. So when you're running, as your foot contacts the ground, um, your tib post muscle essentially lengthens or works eccentrically. And this allows the middle part of your foot to drop down and essentially the foot pronates. Uh, this means that the foot can become a mobile platform to allow it to adapt to different terrain. Does it make sense so far? It does, yes, absolutely. Okay, good. Um, the other really important thing that it does is during the later stages of running, as you push off, um, the foot then has to change from a mobile platform into a more rigid lever. 
Um, and this allows the calf um, to become more efficient as you push off. So if the foot was still mobile and flexible during this stage, um, then the calf wouldn't be able to generate so much momentum or power as you push off. So essentially, during the different stages of the running cycle, the tip post helps the foot to switch between a mobile platform and then a rigid lever, depending on what it needs to do at that particular time. Very beautifully said. So if <laughs> someone's just sitting there now, if they can like feel their shin and kind of feel the inside of their shin, that's kind of the region, like the deep part is where the muscle might be. But if you can kind of trace further down, keep following your shin further, further down, you see that bump on the inside of your ankle, the, the tendon actually um, passes behind that bone, as you're saying, and then will um, attach onto the, the arch of the foot or around the arch of the foot. And that's kind of where it's placed. And what you're saying is when a runner makes first contact with the ground, what the body needs to do is absorb that load. Otherwise there's a huge shock that goes through your body. So um, what the foot does is uh, roll in or pronate in in order to slowly absorb those loads. Cause we don't want a, a big fast slap into the ground. Otherwise we're going to get a lot of damage. So what the, tendon is responsible for or the muscle is responsible for is slowly kind of controlling that action so that we absorb that load over a period of time so it doesn't like become like a sudden impact force and that's very important for us so we don't get injured but um, then what you're saying is later in the phase we do need to switch to a more of a rigid lever so that we can propel off because we can't push off a very flat, um, flexible surface. So what it does is create a really rigid lever in order to propel forward um, further in that running cycle. And the tibialis posterior, what it does is go from that platform, like you said, that mobile platform of absorbing load and then switching on and kind of creating that lever for momentum and propulsion. Yeah, exactly. So it's a really, really important uh, tendon in terms of walking and running gait. Um, yeah. Yeah, fantastic. I think you explained that perfectly. And I think for someone who doesn't have much of a physio background, it's nice for like repetition to like explain it in a few different things. And maybe, maybe one little explanation, like finally um, catches on for someone that, oh, now I get it. <laughs> so um, hopefully we're all on top of that now. And realizing the anatomy and the function of things when it comes to a tendinopathy what might be the primary cause of a developing pain um so i guess the first thing to think about is with tibialis posterior tendinopathy or posterior tibial tendon dysfunction as it's sometimes described is that it's essentially an overload of the tib post tendon. Um, perhaps it's working too hard to stabilize the foot for various reasons when you're running. Um, and when it's asked to, to, to do too much too soon, it can become a bit grumbly and angry. Um, and there are various different causes. So as with many running injuries, there are often multiple things going on. So it's very difficult to just attribute it to one thing. Um, usually there are a combination of different triggers that perhaps might be intrinsic so things going on inside the body or extrinsic so things going on outside the body so if we think specific to tib post um, some of the intrinsic factors that might be going on could be potentially some strength deficits um, in particular the tib post and the calf complex 
um, but also the whole of the kinetic chain. So the whole of the, the lower leg muscles, the quads, the hamstrings, the glutes. If you're globally quite weak, it might be that you're putting a bit more demand through the foot and ankle. Um, some of the other intrinsic factors might actually be the structure and the shape of your foot. Um, so this can mean that your tib post has to work a little bit harder to stabilize the arch when you're running um, because, and then it might be more likely to become overloaded. So for example, if you have a naturally flat foot or dropped arches, this might put your tib post at a little bit of a disadvantage because it has to work in a slightly stretched position. This doesn't mean that all runners who have flat feet will develop tib post problems. And in fact, there are probably loads of experienced runners out there that have flat feet and have no problems at all. Um, so it's likely that foot shape is only a small part of the puzzle and it might be relevant for some people. I think one of the other things that's particularly important um, with runners is mobility restrictions. So um, in particular, some restriction around the ankle joint. Um, so a reduced ankle dorsiflexion range of motion can be particularly important in tib post tendon problems. So dorsiflexion is essentially when the top of the foot moves closer to the shin. So it's the opposite of going onto your tiptoes. And this might be a result of perhaps some stiffness around the ankle joint or some tightness in the calf muscles. Um, and this movement is actually really important um, during the later stages of running when your foot is in contact with the ground. Um, and if it's restricted, sometimes this can cause the foot to go into pronation to compensate for that stiffness. And that might actually put some load through the structures on the inside of the foot, including the tib post. I think the last intrinsic factor to be aware of is probably BMI, so um, body mass index, how, how heavy you are for your height. Um, so if you have a high BMI, um, generally you're going to put a little bit more mechanical load through your foot and ankle tendons, and this might put more stress through the tib post, which has to work a bit harder to stabilise the arch. Now, interestingly, as well as um, having a mechanical effect, fat cells, um, especially around the abdomen, can lead to more inflammation in your body. Um, and this can affect the health of all tendons, uh, including the tib post. Um, and it generally promotes this widespread inflammatory environment, which makes tendons more susceptible to inflammation. Um, I'll go on to the extrinsic factors, but I wanted to check if you had any questions on that first. Really. Yeah, there might be a few things that we can unpack there. Um, when you first start, you answered this really, really nicely and it covered so much. There's, first of all, you talked about the overload, which hopefully the listeners are like, oh, fantastic. That fits the pattern of every other tendinopathy, every other lower limb tendinopathy that's out there for runners. So um, doing too much too soon is definitely um, a key factor for the cause for this. <clears throat> and um, over the last couple of episodes, I've kind of been explaining that if you, if you, uh, have do too much too soon, or if you overtrain and like there'll, uh, an injury will develop at almost at your weak link. And let's just say, um, you do have a foot shape or a, an arch that's lower than others. And like you said, it puts the tendon under more stretch. If you then overload your body if you go from running 10 K to doing 20 K too quickly, 
it's more likely you're going to develop this tip post endopathy if you do have a lower arch because it is under more stretch compared to someone else who has a higher arch. But that's not to say that the collapsing foot is the direct cause. The direct cause is the overtraining. It's just um, highlighting your weak points as soon as you do have those training errors. And if you were to adapt, if you do have flat feet and you do adapt um, carefully enough, then that tendon just gets stronger and stronger and stronger, but you might just be a little bit more of a, at a predisposition. If you do have those training errors, what it will arise. Um, I think that's a really nice way of putting it. And like you said, it's only just a small part of the puzzle, but then you're also factoring in things like ankle mobility and, um, high BMI and that kind of thing. Yeah, absolutely. I couldn't agree more. And and say you're a runner in your 40s um, and you've started to develop this pain. Well, you've probably had the same foot shape and the same running pattern for you know your whole life as since you started running and perhaps you've only just started to develop symptoms since you've upped your training or you started training for an event so it's not that necessarily your foot is the problem it's perhaps your foot shape combined with the fact that you've had a sudden increase in training load and perhaps addressing the training errors um, is more relevant than trying to um, address the structural shape of your foot yeah. I'll never forget when I very first started running, I went to a park run and there was a lady there who was a bit overweight. She had like, it was cringeworthy how flat her feet were and how much they collapsed in. And she was running 5k and she was actually doing it in like barefoot shoes or socks or something. And she had no support. She it was, she was collapsing in. She had this external rotation that was just, it was cringeworthy, but I was just watching it because I was fascinated and she was just happily running, doing her 5k. And I'm like, go you like a lot of people will say, why the hell are you running basing your mechanics? But I guess she's just developed um, enough tolerance and the body's adapted strong enough for it to tolerate that. And I'm just like, it's really fascinating how the body can actually adapt and um, become accustomed to what you're putting it through. Yeah. It's amazing. She's probably been doing that for years. Hasn't she? And said she's allowed her body time to adapt to it. So yeah. Yeah. Good to know. Okay. So we have some extrinsic factors that you want to discuss. Yeah, so I think um, the most important one there is training loads, which we've kind of touched on already. So I think this is an under-recognized cause of running-related injuries, certainly amongst runners. Um, and actually, it's it's been suggested that it accounts for about 70% of running-related injuries. And it's particularly relevant, I think, in tip-post problems. So as we've talked about, it's this doing too much too soon and not allowing the body time to adapt to it. So in particular, things like increasing training volume, or perhaps increasing the speed of your runs because you're trying to improve your performance or training for a specific event. Um, Or perhaps you've reduced your rest days or even started running on slightly different terrain. So an uneven route where your foot has to maybe adapt a little bit more and your tip post has to work a little bit harder to stabilize your foot. Um, So if, as we've said, if these changes are introduced slowly, I think that the tip post can adapt. But the problem is when is when we're introducing these changes is too quickly. I think another important consideration, certainly with the foot and ankle is footwear. Um, or perhaps more importantly, sudden changes in footwear. So a classic example would be switching from a nice supportive motion control shoe to a more minimalist shoe to perhaps try and improve your performance. Um, And again, we know that this makes the tip post work much harder to stabilize the arch. 
And I think also whilst we're on the topic of footwear, it's also worth considering daily footwear habits. So not just while you're running, um, but perhaps what you're doing at work, what you're doing at home. Um, a classic example again might be um, when the, the weather gets a bit nicer and you switch from a trainer to a flip-flop, which I think you guys call thongs. Yes, we do. <laughs> uh, yeah, so again, this will put uh, at obviously provide much less support to the arch of the foot and it combined with all the other things that we've talked about could potentially be enough to tip someone over the edge. Yeah. Great. And you can say that um, you can almost have a training load too much too soon outside of running. It's almost like just quickly chiming in here to let you scholars know, I have just updated my five day injury prevention challenge. This is one email per day for five days, learning new concepts and diving into the science on how you can reduce your risk of injury. The sign-up link is in the show notes, so fill in your details and I'll be waiting for you in email number one tomorrow. That same concept, like you're saying, as soon as it goes to summer and you go from wearing shoes all the time to wearing or just going in bare feet, walking around or um, going to the beach and walking around on the beach, even though you're not running, this could be an overload in itself because the tendon works so hard to, like you said, at the very start of the episode, it's one of its primary roles is controlling the foot. And if you take away all that support really suddenly, then um, the, the load just might shoot up. And that's not to say that barefoot could be a, a good thing, but we just need to make sure that it's gradual and it's, you're allowing that body enough time to get used to that sudden change in environment, sudden change in footwear or the support that you're offering it. Um, it's very key. And I love that you say that because I, I didn't really consider it too much because this is a running podcast, but some people might just be like, I got this pain. I don't know why I've set, I've stuck to the same training schedule for the last six weeks. And I just don't know why, but they're probably not considering things outside of running. So very, very good point that you highlighted there. Yeah, I think it's a little bit of detective work as well. You know, you do have to sort of tease these things out and runners often don't think that it's it's relevant. So it can be useful to just think about that. Yeah, I have the next question written down, but I think we've already covered it. It was um, perhaps discussing the role of pronation and the importance of pronation in running. And I, I think we discussed it early enough, but is there anything you want to add on before we move on to the next question? Um, I think just that it's a really complex movement occurring across multiple joints, requires coordination of lots of muscles. I don't think you need to get bogged down with the mechanics of it. Um, but as I mentioned previously, um, it, it, well, I don't know if I have mentioned it, actually. I think it's just got pronation has got a really bad reputation in the running industry. Um, and I think that we get lots of runners coming in and they're really concerned that they've perhaps been told that they're a pronator or that they over pronate. Um, and I think we just need to move away from um, thinking that it's the, the root of all evil. Um, having feet that pronate more than perhaps someone else's doesn't necessarily mean that you'll develop an injury. And actually there's some research to say that um, having excessive pronation might even be protective against certain injuries. Um, so, um, I think that we just need to move away from thinking that it's harmful. Um, there are certainly some scenarios where it might be relevant, but as with a lot of these things we're discussing this evening, um, it's only a small piece of, of a very large puzzle. <laughs> yeah, I, I did uh, release a, an article that was highlighting this and it's only just one article, take it um, with a pinch of salt, but they did follow a whole bunch of runners uh, 
new runners with their and they put them into categories of their foot shape and saw how long it took for them to get their first injury. And the pronators, like they, um, I think there was no uh, difference between groups, whether you had a high arch, neutral arch, um, like a low collapsing foot arch, that kind of thing. And also it showed in there that potentially the ones who did pronate were less likely to get injured or spent or had a longer time until their first point of um, their first injury. So it's interesting to know, but why do you think there's this misconception out there that, you know, if you're an over pronator, you're more likely to get injured. You need all this support. Um, otherwise you're not, you shouldn't be running. Where do you think that's um, distilled and where do you think that's arisen from? Um, I think it's very historic and it, it's certainly been around as long as I can remember. And I think part of it is probably to do with the running industry and perhaps making money out of expensive footwear and trainers that are designed to limit pronation. So it's in, possibly their interests um, to try and kind of explain to runners that it's harmful because they may be more likely to invest in in the brand. The classic example, I guess, is when a runner goes to a specialist trainer store to ask for advice about the best trainers for their foot type and someone maybe gets them to stand on a pressure plate. Maybe they get them to run barefoot on the treadmill uh, and they tell them that they're an overpronator as if this is the cause of all of their problems and unfortunately running injuries are just a little bit more complex than that the relationship as you've mentioned between pronation and injuries still is something that is poorly understood um, and you know we see so many runners with excessive pronation with no significant pain or injury history so if it was the devil as many um trainer shops probably um kind of explain then you know everyone with this movement pattern would suffer with these particular injuries but that's simply not the case um so yeah yeah and i think if someone isn't aware of the the current information isn't aware of the current evidence it, it kind of just like makes sense to them it's kind of like you see a photo of collapsing feet and you're like oh that doesn't look good and you look at someone who collapses in when they run there you're like oh that doesn't look too good and then you see a photo of an arch or like a a posture, feet collapsing in, knees collapsing in, like hips are out of line. And then they have support under their feet where everything just magically aligns. And it kind of just makes sense. It makes sense like visually for them. And then they're, it's reinforced when um, they're being told by maybe uh, health professionals or like you said, people at shoe stores and it kind of just reinforces that belief. Um, because I know if I didn't have any training, that'd make a whole lot of sense that we want to be aligned. And if you are, over pronating we'll say if you are doing that then you're um it, it doesn't look like a good thing and, and yeah like i said it makes sense but i do have a, a story i like to tell myself that if someone has an achilles problem if someone develops an achilles tendinopathy because they've been running too many hills like we or if they have less protection or less like of a heel drop um because that achilles is put under more stretch and what we call, like you said, dorsiflexion. Like if someone's running up hills, your foot goes into more dorsiflexion. It's under more stretch. If they develop a, an Achilles injury, we don't call them like an over dorsiflexor and say you shouldn't be, um, a, you shouldn't be overly dorsiflexing. No, that just make no sense at all. What you'd say is, okay, this is an overload. It's a, it's a, too much of an acute overload. What we can do is perhaps put you in some heel lifts to get you out of stretch in the short term, just to settle down some pain. And then 
once we get back, we need to make sure you're strong. We need to make sure that you don't overload with your training. We make sure we, we address all those training errors and things outside of running so that the tendon um, heals and gets stronger. It's exactly the same with this tip posting. You know, the injury might have been caused by a sudden load due to pronation, but that's not to say that you're an overpronator. We just need to um, educate people on that right topic. Is there anything you want to add with that? Yeah, no, absolutely. I completely agree. And it's a really nice way of explaining it because I think we're so sort of embedded in this belief that pronation is bad. But I think once you explain it in a slightly different way, um, it's much more easy for runners or patients to then think, oh, actually, yeah, that, that makes sense. Um, maybe it's not, not such a terrible thing. Yeah. So we've moved into pain now. We've moved into um, the tendon itself has started to become a bit irritated. Perhaps we've had some training errors. Uh, what can we do in the early stages in order to settle down this irritated tendon? So I think the priority um, in the early stages is to try and reduce anything that might be overloading the tendon and, of course, reduce any pain associated with that. Um, so training modifications is a really important um, starting point. So as we've already mentioned, prioritizing things like reducing volume or speed of training. And I think a really, really key thing is adding in some, some rest days for adequate recovery. Um, and I think this is something that can often be quite tricky for runners who've perhaps been used to running six days a week for a number of years and then having to adjust to that it, it can be quite tricky but it really is an important strategy to try and reduce any overload and just allow things to settle down um, and and on those rest days you could add in some cross training perhaps swimming or um, some cycling so you're kind of having some active recovery. Um, and I think it's quite nice as well in that stage to, to stick to some sort of pain monitoring model. Um, so when you're running or when you're doing your rehab exercises, or even when you're just doing your daily activities, be guided by your symptoms. So think about um, a, a score out of 10. Um, and I think it's okay for your symptoms to be less than a four. So around about a three out of 10 with any of the activities that you do. Um, but when you stop those activities, your symptoms should settle down um, within a 24 hour period. So it shouldn't make your symptoms the next day any worse. And that's a really good way of trying to control the symptoms in the early stages and, and, and calm things down. We've talked already about footwear modifications. I think that that can be useful as well in the early stages. So perhaps um, considering something like a motion control shoe, um, if you're in something more minimalist, um, and that's because it has a bit of stiffness in the midsole and it, it might even have a little bit of a wedge under the inside of the heel just to lift the inside of the heel up a little bit. And this could potentially reduce some of the forces acting on the, the foot and, and some of the loads on the tib post. Now, just remember that making significant changes or sudden changes like this could potentially shift the load elsewhere. So you might want to introduce these changes more gradually over, say, a three month period. Um, and you might need to even seek advice from, say, a podiatrist or physio who specializes in running injuries to just give you some guidance on that. And then the other thing in the early stages is to think about um, daily footwear habits as well. So with all of my patients who are who perhaps have quite severe symptoms, I would always try and get them to wear some sort of supportive shoe, even just around the house. And then 
we've talked a little bit about orthoses already and I'm sure we'll go into a, a bit more detail later on um, but I think that these can be really useful to offload uh, the tib post uh, when running and walking so the aim is not to put the foot into a perfectly aligned or neutral position but rather to offload painful tissues so that things can settle down and become less irritable um yeah i don't know what your thoughts are on that brody yeah brilliant because that that's the exact same scenario that we're talking about we're talking about like an acute flare-up where it is irritated and it needs to settle down in order to start applying some load that it can start tolerating so um there's some really nice strategies and it does um uh, tee up really well with a question came in from Catherine because she asks if you were to prescribe an orthosis in a young middle-aged adult what would you prefer is there one that you might prefer over the other because there's a, a wide range of variety of different orthoses that are out there in the market yeah so I think it's really difficult to make that kind of decision so um, as we've talked about orthoses are essentially just an external device that can change the internal forces that are acting on the foot um, and it can be really useful in the early stages. It really depends on your particular symptoms. So if you've had fairly short lasting symptoms and you consider yourself to have a fairly neutral foot um, or neutral foot type, then you might get away with a simple over-the-counter orthosis. So essentially you just want something with a little bit of a medial arch support. Um, and you might even just need this temporarily until thing, things settle down. If you've had symptoms for quite a while, so they're quite persistent, long lasting, and perhaps you have some concerns about the shape of your foot or the fact that you're pronating when you run, this is when um, I would probably consider uh, speaking to a good a podiatrist who specializes in running injuries because it might be that actually you need some custom-made orthoses and they can do a more thorough assessment so I personally don't prescribe orthoses and um, so I would always refer my patients on to a podiatrist and there are a number of different variables that they have to consider like the stiffness or shape of the material whether or not they put wedges underneath your heel um, and the friction of the, the top of the fabric um, to reduce slipping between your foot and the orthosis so yeah it's a really complex process and, and personally I would um, get my runners to seek advice from a professional if they have any sort of concerns about it yeah I totally agree with that one and you mentioned two different things with that question you said one it would depend on your symptoms so it's not for everyone it's it depends on your individual circumstances and two you said it's used just for the early stages and uh, it might not be a permanent thing to, okay, you need orthotics for the rest of your life. You need to run in these orthotics. You need to run with this supportive shoe. Um, keep in mind that if you choose to, that's fine, but you shouldn't be told to. And the role of the orthoses in the early stages is just to offload that tendon or shift the load somewhere else away from that irritated tendon in order for time for it to heal, in order for it to, uh, in a day or two or maybe a week, start tolerating more loads and start applying more strength and i think this is a really good time to ask sam's question because he said um uh sam's recovering from um tip post tendinopathy i'm not too sure if it's male or female I need to check that but um been doing a lot of calf and footwork and experiencing a lot of ups and downs and a lot of flare-ups when it comes to the um the rehab portion of the tip post tendon so um should someone expect these flare-ups well they, they said forever but um should someone expect these flare-ups throughout their rehab 
Uh, first thing I think is important to understand that flare-ups are very normal and common, especially when it comes to lower limb running injuries and overuse injuries like tib post tendinopathy. It's a complex injury as we've already talked about and there are not often a lot of different factors associated with your symptoms. So it sounds like you've been doing some strength work already, which is great because this is a really important variable to consider. Um, but it might be that you want to consider some other factors too. Um, so things like training loads that we've already talked about or possibly some some mobility issues so uh, we know that with running it's really important that you have good mobility in your big toe in your ankle joint and also with your hip so hip extension which is bringing the leg back and these are really key movements for running um, and a good running physio will assess all of these in clinic as part of a, an assessment with you um, and then something um, another thing to consider as well is running mechanics so um, we know that if you have prolonged or excessive pronation when you run this may be relevant to your your pain and your the problems that you're having so it might be worth getting someone to assess you running as well and it might be worth considering an orthosis if you don't have one already um, flare-ups definitely shouldn't last forever um, so you should expect to get some improvement within a few months and definitely some significant changes within six months. So if you're really not progressing, I'd, I'd definitely advise you seeking some help from someone who understands running injuries and who understands foot and ankle problems as well. Yeah. And I think um, if Sam's like reflecting on this as well earlier in the episode, reflecting on footwear outside of running as well, um, perhaps that might be something that might be triggering your flare-ups that you're not realizing because you're focusing too maybe on the the running component or maybe like the walking component or maybe the strength component and not realizing the standing and just um, daily life of footwear. Um, so perhaps um, identifying all those factors and seeing if there's a certain pattern with the flare-ups and changing um, the behavior or changing any predictability that might be occurring. Um, really, really nice. Um, since you're talking about some running considerations and you did mention the, um, the long or excessive pronation, um, are there any running, any other running considerations like terrain or gait retraining that we might need to consider? Uh, I think it's a difficult one. And the, unlike the knee, there's very little evidence or research on, on tib post tendinopathy. So everything is really very much based on kind of, experience and chatting to other people you you could potentially have a go with increasing step rate or cadence so the amount of steps you take per minute so if you say increase this by five percent you're going to be taking quicker steps which means that you'll be spending less time in contact with the ground and in theory this should reduce loads on the tib post um, and, and so it could potentially offload um, anything that's, that's causing or triggering the pain. Um, I've had a couple of runners where I've tried it and actually it's flared them up a little bit. So I think you can definitely try it and explore it. And if it helps you, fantastic, keep going. But if it doesn't work as a strategy, then you might want to move on to considering something else. Okay. Um, <clears throat> what about terrain? What about uphill, downhill, trails, road, anything there to consider? I think the main thing is probably uneven surfaces just because the foot has to adapt so much more and the tib post has to work so much harder. 
Um, I think with trails, mm, I haven't really known that it's a massive issue, certainly not like it would be in, in an ITV related problem. And up and downhill as well, I, I don't think that's a major problem. I think speed work could potentially be an issue and that can generally be a problem in a lot of foot and ankle tendon problems. Um, but yeah, no, I haven't noticed it, it be particularly um, triggered by, by hills. Uh, I, I don't know what your experience is, Brody. Um, in the, in the, when I was working in clinics, I, there's a river that's um, near our clinic and people do a 5k loop around this river. There's a bridge that takes them over the top and um, someone who was running around that river and came in with a tip post tendinopathy, I could almost guess what um, direction they were running in because even though they're on either maybe the grass or the concrete path or something, there's a very gentle um, like slope towards the water and everyone always, they're, they're creatures to habit. Like I think they always travel in the same direction every single time that they run <clears throat> around that river. And so I could almost predict what direction clockwise counterclockwise or heading in because if you were to run in one direction and there's a slope from left to right one foot is going to pronate more one foot is going to supinate more and if they they've obviously had an overload in training but they're still running around that slope and if um yeah i, I think if uh there is a very gradual slope then there would be an increased likelihood if the, a, tin, uh, a tip post endopathy were to arise, it'd be on that foot that pronates more um, towards the water. And sometimes, well, one of my best advice is just, okay, every second time you go to run around the river, just go in the other direction and it just naturally balances things out. It loads things correctly. And I would consider that, consider the direction of slope. If you're a trail runner that loves to run around a creek or a river, just keep an eye on the slope if it's a consistent slope, um, because you will be subjecting your body to different loads, um, right to left. If you, one of those creatures that happen that do stick to the same trail, the same road the entire time, um, that might be thing, one thing I'd add. But um, yeah, you answered that really, really nicely. Um, yeah, okay. Really point actually, running sort of along along a slope, I can see how that would be relevant. Yeah. Yeah, made made a whole lot of sense to me. And even when I first started running around that river, I started developing a little bit of stuff on the inside of my foot as well. Don't know if it was tip post, it might have been, but um, recognized that and started running in the opposite direction. It just went away forever. So sometimes catching it early and recognizing it early um, can, all you need to do is just make one switch, which is um, a really nice thing if you catch it early enough. So I think there was, there was a lot of questions around strength work. And if we're still on this topic of the early phase, perhaps a little bit irritated, we've settled it down with um, some supportive footwear and minimizing the running, maybe we're backing off the mileage and things are starting to calm down, what can be some early strength or rehab options that you would recommend? Um, so I think that um, a lot of people like to go for TheraBand strengthening exercises, and that can be a nice way of isolating strength in the early stages. But I would probably be more inclined to go for um, stuff in standing um, where it's a little bit more functional to running. Um, so even just some single leg control work um, and some, some heel raise strengthening. 
which is sort of slowly graded you can manipulate variables like um, the external load that you hold or the reps or the sets or even the speed i like to keep it quite simple um, and i like to try and think of um, the different stages of running that you're trying to create so thinking about um, that early heel strike that you get when you run so you might want to work on um, the the stepping and controlling and trying to keep a nice position of your midfoot and your heel and then you can also place bands around the leg to just add a little bit of resistance to try and um, pull the the the, um, the foot into a slight slightly pronated position so you, your foot has to work much harder to um, control that um, i guess it's quite hard to explain over um over the the podcast it's, it's usually useful to have some videos or, or pictures to describe it definitely uh, when you say single leg control work um are we talking about balance are we talking about walking are we talking about um like calf raises all the above uh i i think they're all probably going to have their place but i think you can start with even just stepping and holding um and controlling um with resistance from perhaps a band around the side of the leg um you can even do single leg balance you can do like a single leg deadlift is quite a nice control exercise um even single leg squats where you're really thinking about the position of the the midfoot um, and the heel so trying not to let the midfoot and the heel drop down um, can be quite a nice exercise um, and kind of step ups with a bit of a knee drive is, is, is a really nice exercise to work on as well. And while you're doing these exercises, you've mentioned that we're trying to focus on control the foot and motion of the foot. Do you have any specific like cues that you like to give people if they are doing a single leg deadlift and maybe their awareness isn't like very strong around the foot do you have any cues that you like to use um i think just uh maybe trying to let them uh, trying to explain to not let the arch drop down which i think is a really simple cue that can be quite effective it might be that if they really struggle with that you might want to teach them how to do that in a in a seated position first and just give them some awareness of it obviously we don't want um, people to be terrified of doing that movement because it's not harmful it's not going to cause damage but what we do want to do is encourage the the tib post muscle to activate while you're exercising and to do that it's probably good to have a nice neutral position of the of the foot yeah and would you have that same awareness for things like calf raises like if you're going up and down on your toes you're trying to keep that arch engaged or making sure it doesn't um doesn't pronate I think the main thing with the heel raises is as you push up onto your uh, tiptoes and your heel leaves the ground, um, the back of your heel um, should sort of rotate inwards a little bit. And that essentially shows us that the tip post is doing its job. Um, and if it, if it stays really, really flat or um, in sort of a position where the heel is pointing outwards, it might be that we try and retrain that a little bit. So rather than focusing on the arch during a heel raise, you'd be focusing focusing more on the position of the heel as, as it lifts up. I've often seen people do double leg calf raises with like a small, like tennis size, a tennis ball sized ball, like squeezing between their heels. Would you recommend that? 
I definitely use that in really, really early stage when they can't perhaps do a single leg exercise, a single leg heel raise, um, because I think that it, it's a nice, really well tolerated exercise that it's got someone on their feet and, and, and you know, got them loading their foot. Um, but I would try and progress quite quickly onto a, a single leg heel raise. Um, and that's just because it's a little bit more specific to running. Um, I quite like an exercise where you... Um, get the runner to put their opposite foot perhaps on a chair um, and then they're going to do a modified heel raise with the injured foot on the floor um, and it just gives you um, the opportunity to load the foot a little bit more than you would do on a double leg. Um, I don't really think that exercise has a name but I just call it a heel raise with their opposite foot on a chair. And you can add load to that so they can hold a weight um, or, or perhaps a dumbbell or a kettlebell um, and, and focus on that heel position as you lift. Yeah, I think I saw a photo of that during your presentation and it, the chair was a little bit more forward. So it was kind of almost like a, a lunge um, kind of distance away. Is that the one you're talking about? Yeah, and it's quite specific to that stage of running because when you push off your heel, um, your foot is quite far behind you. So it's quite good to, I, th I think, be be lunging forwards onto something. Yeah, it's perfect to mimic that um, that action of the, the running cycle. So if, uh, if we've lost some viewers, just imagine if you do a lunge. Most people can imagine what a lunge position would look like, but that front foot is up on a chair. Um, you might not be that far forward, but um, that's the kind of, position you can be in and then you can do calf raises with the leg behind you um i really like that and then you can add weights if you have um you can maybe hold on to a dumbbell with one side or if you have like a smith machine um then you can apply load with the across the shoulders um so that's a really nice one that's so functional and makes a whole lot of sense so if you have the opportunity to do that i'd highly recommend it and then you're focusing on that the control of the foot the entire time making sure the quality of the movement is um up to standard yeah absolutely right how about well i guess my next question would have been more advanced strengthening or like end stage stuff um i guess this calf raise one can get pretty advanced and can be considered um pretty end stage stuff but do you have any other exercises you might recommend? Because I also think that end stage exercises can also be considered as prevention exercises as well for those who have had tip post tendinopathy in the past or those who might think they're um, at a predisposition to getting this tip post stuff. So when it comes to end stage exercises, consider that as um, prevention type of exercises as well. Any tips? Um, I think the first thing to be aware of is that the tib post, its main function is that it's a positional tendon. So this means it's it's designed to support and stabilize the arch of the foot. So it's very different from something like the Achilles, which is designed more for speed or power. And so during end stage rehab, although it's really good to focus on heavy loads and plyometric drills to prime the runner for the demands of running, you know, you don't want to do specific heavy loads or plyometrics to isolate the tip post. You're more trying to work the whole lower leg to just prime it for getting ready for running. 
Um, so yeah, as you mentioned, you could do heavy calf raises, um, single leg uh, drills, like single leg squats. Um, you can increase the load on just squats and, and things like lunges. Um, and then I think, think uh, slowly progressing to more speed drills and plyometrics can be useful. Um, so just standard uh, lower limb plyometric exercises are pretty adequate and you'd want to do one to two sessions a week um, for about two or three weeks um, to prime you for getting, getting back to the full demands of running, probably alongside a, a return to running program. Um, yeah, and, and sorry, go on. Uh, I was just going to say it's really important when you do things like speed drills or plyometrics um, to monitor your symptoms uh, during and after and just be guided by that pain monitoring model again because you don't want to trigger a, a flare-up if you, if you suddenly increase the, the speed or intensity of your training. I see that mistake um, too often, so I'm glad you highlighted that because um, people are like, yeah, I need to start plyometrics. So they'll do three sets, four sets of a new exercise, and then it's just flared them up for a couple of days. So um, be very careful when it comes to plyometrics for any rehab at any stage, making sure it's a gradual uh, set. So you might want to do, if you're doing three sets of deadlifts or something, you might want to make sure that um, if you're increasing speed or implementing some sort of plyometric movement that you're only doing one set and then seeing how you feel then if it's okay, you're then implementing the second set and see how you feel. And then you're slowly, gradually imp uh, implementing that explosive kind of movement. Um, so Jill did ask a question about plyometrics and I think we answered it uh, perfectly. A couple of plyometric examples would just be things like skipping, would be things like, um, you know, those drop squat jumps, like just anything that's quite explosive. Um, plyo lunges maybe um as long as the control is really good i think you can probably youtube plyo lunges if you if you are not familiar with those but like you said all the time making sure that the control is there making sure that the um, technique is there and making sure that it is gradual when you do implement it and then when it comes to the preventative side of things you're saying that this tendon is mainly designed for control so a really nice prevention and priming or like a warm-up kind of pre-activation thing would just make sure that you're, you have good control and making sure during every exercise that you do have good control of the foot and ankle and the rest of the lower limb. And potentially before a run, if you're uh, experiencing, or if you're like the end stage, maybe some pre-activation exercises could be things like a single leg deadlift or a single leg squat or a single leg calf raise, focusing on the control, making sure that's the key point of the exercise and that's warming up and preparing the tendon for things like a run or a gym session um is that is that kind of what you're getting across or am i yeah, yeah a little bit i think what's important is that that a runner doesn't worry too much about then taking that into the run and thinking about every step and trying to right. control the I think that that's something that just um, should happen naturally. But I think, um, yeah, some, some kind of warm-up exercises are always useful. I will always get people to also really focus on um, ankle range and ankle mobility before a run. So perhaps doing some calf stretches or ankle mobility work, just because we know that if the ankle is really restricted, that can put a little bit more load on the tib post. Um, so that's a really nice way of offloading it um, pre-run um, so yeah, that would be something I would also focus on. Lovely. I think, um, I, I see it the same with people who have like glute problems and they try and run and activate their glutes while they're running. And, um, I think the same could be said for tip posts. Like if people are worried about it and they're trying to engage their arch and they're trying to, um, control their foot every time they step when they're running, I think that's just detrimental and shouldn't 
be happening. So, um, yeah, I, I, I totally agree with that. Is there, as we're wrapping up, is there any other running considerations when it comes to rehab and prevention? I think we've covered so much, but anything else that comes to the top of your mind? No, I don't think so. I think just, um, you know, thinking about whole kinetic chain strength, as we've already talked about, making sure you get enough recovery between loading sessions. And that's not just running sessions, but also your rehab sessions as well. Being guided by the symptoms throughout the rehab um, and just thinking about your daily routine as well and the impact that that has. I think those are the key things. Yeah, great. Recovery is awesome. And I think the like when it comes to recovery, things to consider are like maybe um, barefoot walking or maybe like less supportive walking is a good thing. Just make sure it's not in huge amount of uh, dosages because ideally if you want to strengthen the control of the foot, sometimes barefoot walking can be the best thing. Sometimes minimalist shoes can be a good thing, but you just need to make sure that the body's strong enough to tolerate it. And while you're building up that strength, yes, walking around in bare feet might strengthen the tendon, but if you do it every day, if you do it um, several hours in a day and it's too much, then uh, it might be detrimental rather than helpful. And the same thing can be said with uh, changing footwear for your running. And perhaps you have changed to a lighter shoe. Like we said at the top of the podcast, you might transition to a lighter shoe with less support that offers less support, which if you adapt and in the long run, it can be really helpful to make your foot resilient and um, build up the muscles in your strength and strength around the foot and ankle. But if you do it too quickly or if you do it too suddenly or if the, for whatever particular reason at a particular time, your foot and um, ankle can't contain that capacity. They don't have the the tolerance to handle that load. Then these sort of things are going to arise. So making sure that yes, um, when it comes to recovery, making sure that it might be every second day, you might um, do a minimalist shoe walk around, but then every second day you're replacing that with a supportive shoe and you're allowing that tendon time to recover and, allowing like as symptoms allow just um, follow that process and if there is stiffness or pain you might have overdone it so let's respect the body and give it more time to recover put in a little bit more supportive um, for a day and then yeah just working around with those variables to see what best works for you as the individual yeah exactly and as you mentioned as well um, earlier in the podcast maybe changing the route as well so you're not always running on the same trail change the direction so you're just loading different different parts of the foot and the leg um, i think ver- variety is is definitely the way forwards yeah i think like i don't have a tip post tendopathy but i think if i did and i listened to this i'd be like yes i'm ready to take action I'm re- i know <laughs> i understand everything and um i've got a cool a few cool steps to take and we've covered so much we've covered like outside of running inside of running early stage, late stage, you know, irritated, non-irritated. So um, it's been a wealth of knowledge this entire time. And I want to thank you for coming on and sharing your expertise. If there's anyone who wants to um, follow you or uh, if you have any social media accounts, if people want to hear more, where can they be directed to? Yeah. So uh, I'm fairly active on Twitter. So my Twitter handle is, at emarlo89 and i'm more than happy for people to contact me with questions or discussion points um so yeah feel free to add or, or follow me brilliant i will add that link into the show notes um so if people want to reach out contact you or just follow your content um they can just click on that and straight away they can start following you uh brilliant i uh, like i said a lot of people um that are listening to this podcast have been waiting a long time for a tip post episode so i couldn't have 
I couldn't think of a better person to discuss this topic. So once again, thanks for coming on. Thank you so much, Brady. I had a really good time. It was great discussing it with you. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Run Smarter Podcast. I hope you can see the impact this content has on your future running. If you appreciate the mission this podcast is creating, it would mean a lot to me if you submit a rating and review. If you want to continue expanding your knowledge, please subscribe to the podcast and get instant notifications when a new episode comes out. If you want to learn quicker, then join our Facebook group by searching the podcast title. If you want to take your learning to the next step, including injury prevention principles, injury-specific insights, and modules to boost your running performance, then head to our website by searching runsmarter.online and jump into our Run Smarter Online course. Once again, thank you for listening and becoming a Run Smarter Scholar. And remember, knowledge is power.